Based on the simple concept that the climate for developing players is better when competition exists, the cauldron arranges for players to be constantly challenged. But when the competition ends, so does the competitive atmosphere. I'll admit, I did not believe that the women in the UNC program could enjoy this type of atmosphere. I did not think they could bang around each other in practice and be best friends five minutes later. I was wrong. That was a quote from Tim Nash, who was writing about Anson Dorrance and the UNC women's soccer team's competitive cauldron. With Dorrance, Tim Nash co-authored Training Soccer Champions, which is one of the most timeless coaching books of all time. Today's guest, Anson Dorrance, has been coaching nearly 50 years at the time of this recording. He has won 22 national championships, a Women's World Cup. His impact on women's soccer globally, not just in America, is unmeasurable. Not just from the impact he's had on players that he's helped to develop, but on those players that have gone on into coaching. He'll be with us the next two episodes of the podcast. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk about the competitive cauldron, why he uses it, how it's evolved over the years, and how it's foundational to his success as a coach. And I've got a strong suspicion at the end of this episode, you are going to want to implement a competitive cauldron. If you want to learn more about Dorrance's cauldron, I highly recommend his book, Training Soccer Champions. Also, you might want to check out my online course and spreadsheet on the competitive cauldron. I've had over 200 coaches implement it within their team at all levels and in over 10 different sports. The course teaches you how to implement it effectively, and it also gives you a spreadsheet that makes it very, very easy to track data across seven categories in your practices. There will be a link in the details of this episode to the Competitive Cauldron online course and spreadsheet, or you can just head on over to tocculture.com forward slash store. You're listening to the Coaching Culture Podcast. The mission of this podcast is to provide actionable ways for you to grow as a leader and improve your team's culture. For any new listeners, my name is JP Nerman. I'm the founder of TOC Culture Consulting, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. TOC provides one-on-one coaching for leaders, and we teach a framework for building culture. If you want to learn this framework, you can check out my book, The Culture System. It's available at Amazon and on Audible. It's full of practical ways to build your culture, as well as case studies and other unique stories of the ideas put into practice. Now, if you're not a reader or you want to go deeper into the framework and train you and your staff in it, in this leadership and culture framework, then you should check out our incredible online course at tocculture.com. Also at tocculture.com and in the details of this episode, you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which gives you the notes to this and every episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast, as well as Nate and I share every week some thoughts and strategies on leadership and culture in our weekly article. All right, let's get right into our conversation with Anson Dorrance. Well, Coach, we'll get you started on this. You've been in the business now for nearly 50 years and have one of the most uh, exquisite resumes of any coach in any sport here with multiple championships, World Cup championships, coach numerous uh, players have gone up to play professionally, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm curious as we get started here, when you look back at your career, what have you enjoyed most about your coaching experiences so far? I think <clears throat> like anyone that has spent their life uh, in any sport, it's it's certainly you know, the people, uh, the kids I got to train, uh, also the 
staff I got to work with, um, and even uh, uh, UNC, the, the the places I've worked. Uh, but uh, honestly, it's uh, the reason I'm still in it because I certainly could have retired a long time ago. Is I really just enjoy, uh, I guess, human development, um, and obviously within our subset. Uh, uh, and the reason we get together, uh, they're they're draw to this game. <clears throat> but honestly, I love seeing uh, kids go from one level to the next. Uh, I love watching a team coalesce and uh, improve. I love seeing the evolution of uh, these young uh, women that I'm coaching now, because of course we're in a transition period uh, between you know them uh, living a, a bridled existence of obedience to their parents to uh, uh, incredible freedom. And so it's a really interesting nexus for me to be in this uh, position where <clears throat> I get the impact on uh, their, I guess, the construction of their real personalities and the construction of uh, uh, their real lives. Uh, and for me, that's incredibly interesting uh, and uh, rich uh, and just fun, if, uh, for want of a better word. So I'm uh, absolutely enjoying everything right now. You've had a lot of accomplishments, Coach, but it seems like it's the human side that brings you the most enjoyment. I'm curious what you're most proud of in all in this 50 years. Like, is there a particular story of of an impact or um, a statistic, statistic, you know, within your team that just resonates with you? Because I think a lot of times people can get caught up in the World Cup and the 21 national championships and all that. Like, what are you most proud of, though? I think the evolution of our game. Um, very rarely. Uh, does anyone really get to impact the sport? Uh, I got to impact mine. Everyone, back when I was coaching uh, men and the women at UNC, and I did that for 10 years. I started out as a men's coach, and I coached the men while I was getting a law degree. <clears throat> and uh, then uh, while I was finishing or trying to finish the law degree, uh, I was given a women's team. <clears throat> and um, I had an opportunity to decide what I was going to do because. Uh, Two teams eventually became uh, too much, uh, and I selected the women. And I selected the women back in the days when everyone thought that was crazy. Uh, the women's game was basically, you know, nothing, you know, in the opinion of most people, going nowhere. Um, and I guess what I'm most proud of is uh, I got to pioneer a sport, uh, certainly in the United States. And I got to pioneer a sport that wasn't the American game, and I had an opportunity to take the sport from nowhere to the top of the world, basically through the countries where this was their national sport. And so there was nothing more satisfying for me than that, to be a part of something that everyone was skeptical uh, of, uh, to be a part of something that uh, everyone thought for me to decide to dedicate my life to it was a ridiculous choice. And then to see it absolutely transform into where it is now. Uh, so I guess uh, that's what I'm uh, most proud of is that uh, we started, uh, you know, basically nowhere. Uh, we ended up on top of the world. And now a sport that started nowhere is also now uh, climbing its way uh, through uh, uh, the debris of, you know, other, you know, failed uh, uh, systems and other, you know, failed uh, uh, sports that were trying to grasp uh, the ring, you know, internationally. And we grabbed it because the women's game is now uh, uh, continuing to become more and more popular. Uh, the last two games played at home by Barcelona had over 91,000 people watching. Uh, 
so that's kind of exciting. So uh, to be a, a part of it, beginning when everyone told you you were nuts for getting involved, and then to see where it is now, uh, um, that's what uh, uh, I'm incredibly proud of. And your your fingerprints are all over the, the women's soccer in America, and, and even probably now really trickled into the men's soccer as I think people are watching and saying, wait, what have they done so well these last 20 years that or 30 years that have just, you know, brought them to where they are today? I, I'm curious. I, I'm so familiar. I've read some of your your books. I've read books about you from the man watching. Um, but one of my favorite, honestly, my favorite coaching book of all time, and I was a basketball coach, but it was just a game changer for me was uh, training soccer champions, which is an oldie, but like, I'm like, it is still timeless. So there's a lot of stuff that you do that I'm sure is timeless, but I'm curious as you've evolved as a coach, as you've gone forward, what have you recently changed your mind on when it comes to coaching? What have you changed your mind on? Actually, uh, <clears throat> that's a, that's a really good question. First of all, uh, that book is still selling. Um, I get checks, you know, on a regular basis, uh, because of that book and I'm shocked. Uh, and, uh, maybe 10 to 15 years ago, I can't remember how long ago, but I got a call from, uh, um, a publisher and the publisher was saying, you know, Anson, do you mind if we just republish the book without any changes? And I said, well, I, I have no issue with it, but you're nuts because one third of that book is obsolete. So I don't think you're going to have any real value if you decide to publish it. And he was going uh, on the basis of uh, <clears throat> this book, uh, used copies of this book were selling for like a hundred bucks on eBay, uh, which is ridiculous. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, where are all those old copies uh, of the book? Uh, because I was going to you know, make a small fortune on eBay just to sell a book that in my opinion, one third of it uh, didn't have value anymore. But the two thirds that does have value still resonate. And I think to some extent, uh, uh, your very, uh, you know, kind statement about timeless is bearing uh, itself out because uh, it is selling <clears throat> as consistently now as it did back in the old days. And a part of it is it's being discovered by other sports. You guys are basketball guys. <clears throat> um, it sells in basketball. Uh, I think next to soccer, the sport it sells in most is probably volleyball. Uh, but it is selling in basketball. <clears throat> the origin story is a basketball story. So uh, it should sell in basketball because basically I stole the idea for the competitive cauldron from Dean Smith, Michael Jordan's basketball coach. And uh, when I was a young coach, uh, <clears throat> he was just such a wonderful mentor for me because uh, he told me, you know, Anson, if you're ever bored one of these afternoons, you want to come watch us uh, run a basketball practice, you know, uh, I would love it. So please come by and and uh, hopefully some of the ideas that we're doing in basketball, you can apply to your sport. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? And I remember taking my entire staff to <clears throat> watch Dean Smith work. And um, I was stunned, you know, the entire practice. First of all, I was stunned that someone could organize a practice so well it could be broken down to the minute, you know three minutes of this exercise, uh, four and a half minutes of that, you know, and now, uh, you know, a 30 second water break. And, and they handed me this uh, outline of what the practice was going to look like down to the minute. And I was thinking, this is absolutely nuts. I mean, there's no way I could follow that sort of, you know, detail. Uh, and uh, you, you were talking about earlier about, you know, granular. 
I was thinking this is unbelievable. So they actually print something that they're going to actually try to do. Because for me, all I knew coming into a practice is whether it was going to be heavy, medium, or light. And then I would go to town on, you know, exercise I liked, and I would have some vague idea on what I was going to do. And a part of this basically started because of when I started coaching, I was a law student. And anyone that's gone to law school knows that that's an incredibly demanding uh, curriculum. And so it wasn't like I could, you know, have a practice plan and meet with my staff for, you know, an hour, you know, like they do at Barcelona and work out to the most minute detail what was going to go on in that day's practice. No, I was in, in class, you know, sweating it out for the cases I didn't brief that day, just praying the professor wouldn't look down at his role and pick my name out to ask me to brief a case I hadn't read. And so basically when I came to practice, I was free from law school and I was just so relieved. I didn't go into practice, you know, uh, knowing, you know, exactly what I was going to do. I was going to, you know, sort of wheel and deal through practice. And all I knew is whether it was heavy, medium or light. And then when I was given the women's team, that made it even more difficult. So I was actually plan the women's practice during the warm-up for the women when my women's staff showed up and we would sort of you know bloviate about you know what we're going to do that day in practice and all of a sudden I'm sitting there with this Dean Smith outline down to the minute of what was going to go on in this practice and I was stunned and then I was even more stunned first of all when they followed the outline and then I was you know even flabbergasted when I'm looking around his gym and he had these guys with clipboards, his manager sitting underneath each basket recording stuff that was going on in their section of the gym. If a guy hit or missed a, you know, a shot or if he boxed out or failed to on a rebound, if uh, it was 2v2 with the bigs underneath the basket, you, know, you were recording that results as the four bigs rotated to play 2v2 against each other. And just all the details that you guys would know so much more about in the basketball practice. And then what was even more stunning is what happened at the end of practice. You would see Dean Smith gather the gentleman on his team together for a sort of a final chat. You would see all the managers sprint to the scores table. And you would see the head manager compile that day's practice data. And uh, you would see Dean Smith turn around at the end of his address. By this time, the manager would have a ranking of that day's practice performance. And I was thinking, are you freaking kidding me? So the first five guys got to leave the shower immediately. The next five guys were doing suicides, you know, end of the court to the foul line, end of the court to, you know, the halfway point, end of the court to the other foul line, end of the court to, you know, the other end of the court. And uh, it was just incredible. The last five guys, I assume, are, you know, doing their sprinting until the end of recorded time. And I absolutely loved it. I love the accountability of it. I love the immediacy of the feedback, but also I love the data collection. When I was uh, <clears throat> hired to, to coach my teams at the University of North Carolina, my coaching background was not very sophisticated. I was a rainbow soccer coach as a sophomore at the University of North Carolina. And I coached in rainbow. Rainbow was a, a, a league started by one of my good friends, Kip Ward. And I was one of his lieutenants. And I was given, you know, in the entire club to coach from elementary school to middle school to high school to senior teams. And so that was my incubation period of coaching. And that's where, you know, I was, you know, I guess, sharpening my craft. And so now uh, all of a sudden I'm watching a master run a training session. And all I'm doing in watching Dean Smith work is stealing every conceivable idea of what he had.
And the idea that stuck the most with me was the cauldron, the fact that everything counted. And I wanted to design a program I would love to play in. And so here's what I love. First of all, I hate rules. I don't have any rules in my program. Uh, even, you know, showing up on time. I think everyone has, you know, the show up on time rule. I don't even have that as a rule. Now, do I expect everyone to be there on time? Yes, I do. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to treat my kids on my teams the same way I would love to be treated, which is I want to be treated like an adult. I want to be respected. And I don't want a collection of rules that, you know, I'm always worried about tripping over. Uh, but I want to be trusted. I want to be treated like an adult. So by George, that's the way I treat all my kids. And so, yeah, there's an expectation on, on behavior, but there's also an expectation on performance. And also, I want to know at the end of every practice that I'm involved in that I was the frigging alpha. So, yes, I want everything ranked. I want to know that I was the best that day in absolutely everything, and I want it certified. And uh, this is what Dean Smith was doing. He was certifying your success or failure in practice. And if you fail in practice for someone like me, I am going to correct that by the next practice. And if I've succeeded in practice, you know, I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm going to look for the next practice to dominate that one as well in preparation for dominating every game I'm going to play in. So for me, everything that Dean Smith did made such great sense to me. And uh, the other things I learned from him are these things about behavior. Uh, he treated his lowliest manager the way he treated Michael Jordan. He treated them like human beings to be respected. Uh, to be trusted, uh, to rely on, uh, to create, you know, a culture of, of connection. Um, and I love that as well. So, so much of what uh, I've done with my program is studying a great man work uh, and then trying in my own way to, to imitate it. Uh, and obviously uh, not to the great extent that he did, because I don't think uh, anyone in my mind can catch that extraordinary man. But in my own way, I wanted to construct something the way he constructed it. Uh, and that's the sort of birth of of what uh, I believe in and what I do. I, I learned so much there that I love, you know, just your passion to just steal and to learn, to grow, that we could dive into. There's accountability. But I really want to dive a little bit more into the cauldron because it's something that I have stolen from you. And I have went full force implemented because I was honestly tired of, you know, having to offer some sort of rewards or punishment for every little competition and practice. And, and this whole idea of collecting the data and ranking, and I'm useless with a spreadsheet, but my wife, she's in tech and in finance. And so she's great with it. So she created a whole thing to create the ranking. And it's something that a lot of the coaches I've worked with have, have used is this cauldron. I'm curious though, as time has gone by, over the really the last 10 years, especially with Generation Z, this I generation coming in here, there seems to be more fragility there. They lack this toughness. So a lot of people might be hearing, oh my gosh, ranking players, you know, posting that, sharing that information, like that would, my players would never be able to take that or handle that. I'm curious, have you evolved? Have you changed how you run the cauldron, how you share that, that data? Um, or have you pretty much stayed steadfast to, to how you do it? And has it been still effective? Actually, it's gotten even better, in my opinion. In the old days, what we would do is I would have a my director of operations, a gentleman by the name of Tom Sander. 
stand next to me during practice and uh, we would decide what we were going to rank. And if you look at the uh, training soccer champions, which is why the book is obsolete, the initial cauldrons were very sort of minimal competitions. I don't know, maybe 10 to 15. <clears throat> um, and Tom would stand next to me and we would figure out a way to rank everyone in all these different exercises. And obviously uh, with my soccer background, and I have a pretty good uh, math IQ, so I would tell him how we were going to do this particular competition. And then what he would do is he would take the data that he's writing down on the legal pad, and he would organize it. And then all of a sudden, the next day uh, at our practice complex, he would post the results from the previous day's practice. <clears throat> the results were cumulative. So if we were doing, let's say, a half-field game, 7v7s, 4v4s, 5v5s, 6v6s, 9v9s, uh, there would be winners and losers. And so you would have a sort of uh, uh, evolving winning percentage based on what you did in the previous day. So let's assume the first day of practice, we had a, uh, a 77 tournament. So all the players were divided up under these four 77 teams and they would play. So in the course of a 77 tournament, the way I usually run it is you will play each of the other uh, three 77 teams once. So the way I would organize it is the four teams would play all at the same time. Uh, and then the winners would play winners initially and losers would play losers. And then the team you hadn't played yet would be your, your final game. So the first day of the 77 event or the first, you know, one of the first days of practice at the end of that day, you might be three and oh. So now you're sitting at the top of the, uh, the cauldron in this particular exercise and that would be posted. And obviously, the competitive kids, you would see, sneak over to the bullet board and just check where they are, just to make sure I put them at the top. Because, yes, they were undefeated the day before. And the real alphas are checking that board every single day. The ones that are relatively indifferent, that aren't that competitive, that know they had their asses handed to them the previous day, don't check the board. So there are ways that uh, the betas can you know, protect themselves. One is to not even look at the board. Uh, another way is to pretend it doesn't mean anything to them. And sure enough, it doesn't if they're not checking the board. <clears throat> and so, yeah, don't worry. Uh, the fragile uh, certainly have ways to protect themselves. And so I've never felt like I've got to cater to that element in my training environment. The ones I'm catering to are the alphas. Those are the ones that I want to see get to their potential. And so <clears throat> the kids coming into my program know where they're coming. Why do they know where they're coming? Because every single school we recruit against tell them that if you come to UNC, you're going to hate everything about the environment because basically everything is recorded. And they try to create this draconian training environment where everyone hates each other and no one loves it. But someone like me, if someone described my environment to me, I would say, listen, you know, uh, Virginia or Duke or Florida State or Stanford or all these coaches that are recruiting against me, you are saying that I wouldn't like this environment? I don't know. I don't think you know who the hell you're talking to. That's the environment I want to be in. I, I don't want to be in your namby-pamby environment where, you know, you're protecting me from the chaos of the universe because I'm some fragile, you know, insect. No, I want to go straight to hell and tell everyone and show everyone that I can survive it. And so uh, I'll still end up with uh, the players I really want. And the namby-pambies that, you know, don't want to compete or don't want to be evaluated and are fragile, yeah, 
have them go to the other schools because, you know, we want to play against those kinds of personalities. So basically, uh, I have never felt that uh, I've got to cater to the millennials or the Gen Zs because they're not the ones that are going to make a difference. They're not going to be the ones that make a difference for me or for the U.S. Women's National Team or in the case where I've trained some Brits for England or whatever countries, you know, they go back to. Um, uh, I want an environment where, yeah, you're going to be challenged in this environment. And uh, if you don't think you can handle it, please don't come. And so I'm not going to basically organize my environment to, you know, basically protect the lowest common denominator. No, I want my environment to basically challenge the best. Mm -hmm. And if you try to hang on by your fingernails, you know, more power to you. And I'm going to respect that. Uh, and, uh, the other thing that the kids will understand is I do care about them. And, uh, listen, you don't have to be a great soccer player to impress me. In fact, I tell this to my kids all the time. If you want to, you know, cure cancer by all means, especially now, since I'm at the age where I'm probably going to die of cancer. So yeah, go out there and cure it, please. And I know that's a higher calling. So I have no delusions of grandeur about what we're doing. Uh, we're trying to train people to get to their potential. And obviously, because of the other elements of my program, uh, it's not just their soccer development uh, or what I'm interested in. Uh, I am interested in developing them as, as human beings. And there are other things we can talk about in that area. But uh, there is no way uh, I'm going to cater to uh, uh, fragility. Um, no, I think one of the greatest things about sport is the prospect of failure. And I think if you want to really prepare someone for life, you have to prepare them to fail. And basically in our environment, one of my favorite stories of all time was uh, a friend of mine uh, who was a wonderful rival at the University of Portland, a, a gentleman by the name of Clive Charles, was our U-20 national youth team coach. And Clive was an absolutely brilliant coach um, and a, a great rival. And uh, he was uh, picking the best players in the country to uh, represent the United States at the U-20 level. And he had gone over to Europe with his team. And the U-20s and Clive had just lost, uh, I think, Holland or something. And he was teasing one of my players, uh, a, a woman by the name of uh, Danielle uh, Egan. And now she's Danielle uh, Reyna. She's the mother of Gio Reyna, one of the top uh, American uh, players. And he walked up to her right after the uh, the match, after uh, we had lost to uh, the Dutch, and was teasing her and said, Daniel, what does it feel like to finally lose something? Uh, and of course, during this stretch, when Clive was teasing her, we were on you know a nine national championship run. I mean, we were winning every year. And so Daniel was a part of that great you know collection of athletes that just kept winning and winning and winning. And uh, according to Clive, who called me up following the tour, and he was laughing to me on the phone, talking about Daniel's reaction to, you know, Daniel, what does it feel like to finally lose something? Apparently, Daniel looked at him with steely eyes and said, Coach, at the University of North Carolina, we lose every single day. And what she was referring to was the cauldron, because <clears throat> no one wins everything all the time in our sport. And so there's some days, if you're athletic, you might be winning the sprints. There's some days if you're fit, you might be winning, you know, the beep test. There's some days you might be winning the 77 because your collection of athletes 
on that draft day ended up the best. But there's no way you win everything. And so uh, mm-hmm. we try to construct uh, the athletes to bring them back from failure, challenge them. Yeah, all right, today wasn't a good day for you, but come back tomorrow. Let's see where you can go. And we want the athletes that have that sort of resilience. And so I think uh, basically if athletics has any real value, I think this is the place it has value. And I think this is the place where it can really serve the fragile. So uh, we don't make, you know, losing in anything punitive. We don't. We just post it. I don't talk about it. I don't say, oh, my gosh, you know, there you are. Uh, you know, I can't believe it. Uh, uh, you are there, uh, JP, at the bottom of the, the list today. No, 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 no. We don't go around you humiliating people. We know that if you rank the kids, when the kids are looking at the board, there's something inside them that says, you know what? I think I'm better than this. And then you actually spend your time as often as possible, certainly in player conferences, with your arm around the shoulder of that player saying, you know what? Looking at the data, you are better than this. I think if you would do this, this, and this, you can get to the promised land. So it's basically you and your athlete against the data. Because in most, you know, player conferences or most, you know, employer employee uh, meetings, it's basically some sort of subjective review of their performance. There's nothing worse, in my opinion, in any sort of leadership or mentor-mentee discussion than some sort of subjective opinion on where that player is. Because as all of us are learning now with the Gen Zs, um, they have their own protective uh, collection of people behind them that are contradicting everything you're saying. So you're going to have no credibility in a meeting with one of the, of the Gen Zs when their mother and father and their youth basketball coach are telling them, no, 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 your coach is wrong. Your coach has no idea on who you are and you're being disrespected. And so uh, what you've got to do is you can't make it a subjective review. What you've got to do is to make everything as objective as possible because the numbers don't lie. In that 77 tournament, did you win? No, I didn't. If you had played better, could you have won? Like that sitter you missed from inside six that you shot over the top of the bar, could you have finished that? Yeah, I think I could have. Well, I think you could have as well. So with a little bit more wall work, maybe you live on a wall in your free time, maybe that shot will be finished. Uh, Maybe uh, that'll help you, you know, get better at this, that, and the other thing. But basically, you're sitting there with your arm literally around the shoulder of the athlete saying, you know what? I think you're better than this data shows. I think all we have to do is we have to select environments for you to train and develop in that can get you to the promised land. Are you willing to make that commitment? Are you willing to live on a wall? Are you willing to play 1v1? Are you willing to do some extra fitness work in order for you to survive the 1v1 tournaments that are absolutely exhausting? Because I see in those 1v1s, you win the first game or two, but by the third or fourth game, you are gassed. And everyone's bringing you down. So maybe uh, fitness is the issue for you. So basically, it's you and the athlete against the data. And so there's so many different ways to use the cauldron in the most positive way. And it's basically let the fragile know that there are things they can do. And this isn't the end of the world. And, you know, the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. You're going to rise with it. And you're going to decide whether or not you want to do better. And I'm going to help you. Why? Because I am good at helping people get better. So trust me. You listen to me, uh, there's another level for you. I love your conviction to be preparing them for the re- the real world, right? And, and 
you know, your approach towards this. One other thing I've heard around the, you know, your competitive environment is you protect the take on artists. You don't protect the fragile. You, you protect the people that want to go out there and compete. I've always loved that. I want to talk a little bit more about your player one-on-ones in a second. I have a question for you on that. But before I get into that, there's this other data point that I remember hearing you do, which is peer evaluations. Another thing that coaches are afraid sometimes to do is to have their players evaluate that are team members and then to present that data as far as, you know, how their teammates feel they're doing when it comes to their, you know, different behaviors or, or whatever it be. I'm curious, do you still do peer evaluations and, and could you go into a little bit about how you do that with your players? If so. Absolutely. Let me just to finish up the cauldron, just to give you mm-hmm. more detail where you are. Cause you asked about if we've changed it a bit, and certainly changed it for a generation of athletes that aren't as tough as the old days, and, and we have. And the way we've changed it, actually, we've been more aggressive with it. <clears throat> we have brought these people in from our statistics department that are uh, basically majoring in data uh, analysis. And uh, now what they do is they literally take the entire practice and turn it into data. Because we have these certain categories. We have 28 different categories, competitive categories that the kids compete in. But I've got an absolutely brilliant uh, uh, a system by the name of Damon Nahas that is making sure every single practice is different than the previous one. And my analytics statistics uh, guys and girls are <clears throat> taking uh, the practice and turning it into data. We are emailing them the results from that practice that night. So this is as close as we've finally gotten to the Dean Smith thing. Because Dean Smith would literally have them ranked at the end of practice. So now what we do, because our data analysis is a little bit more more complex. We have the uh, analysts put together the ranking from that day's practice. It's emailed to them that evening. And they've described how they've come up with uh, the rankings and uh, why, you know, this was given more weight than that. Uh, And so you get an overall practice ranking. And so these these data analysts are also deciding which part of the session is the best and most powerful one to rank. So maybe the 77 tournament would have a higher rank uh, than, let's assume, the shooting drill at the end of practice. And so you would see that measured with with more weight. So um, we are continuing to evolve, I think, in the most positive way. And now because uh, we have a, a, a data department for the first time, I guess, two or three years ago, they actually get course credit for working for me. So these boys that want to be data analysts uh, are getting course credit because of the sophistication and the demand made on them. So our cauldron is getting even more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, data-driven. And we still haven't lost the uh, director of operations board with all the stuff that he's posting. So you've got that post, which is cumulative, and then you've got the daily post, which is that day. And so what's cool about that day is whenever a kid finishes on top, I'll always send them just the shortest text note. Congrats. You know, you were the alpha today or something or, you know, well done. And uh, sure enough, a lot of different players are rotating through there. And of course, that feels good, too. On that particular day, you were the best player in practice. And uh, you know what? I think that's kind of cool because when they go back to the board, you know, they might be mired in the middle or near the bottom in a lot of the uh, rankings. But on that particular day, you were the best. And so now um, one of the best things uh, you can do as a coach is to provide hope. 
And so what this does with a daily analysis is we also talk about uh, where you rank in things. And so obviously number one's extraordinary, but the kids know of that play for me, if you finish top four in the cauldron, you're off to the national team and you're going to win gold medals in the Olympic, uh, in the Olympics, you're going to win, you know, world championships. And so uh, number one is obviously extraordinary, but top four is also incredibly good because that means you're on the way to, to you know, post-collegiate glory. You're certainly going to sign a pro contract. Uh, top six and top eight, they all sign pro contracts. Top 10 is starting caliber. Top 16 is you play in every half for us because we enjoy playing a deep roster. And so there are all sorts of ways we can look at rankings and pull something positive out of it. If you uh, are, I guess, educated and trained properly the way we educate and train our kids, because in the player conference, we talk about, you know, top four, you know, top 10, top 16, and all these things, you know, uh, have value. And then to get back to your original question about peer evaluation and the old days, I was really afraid as well, because when you're assessing someone's character, this could be really damaging if they discover that no one has any respect for their character. And I was reluctant to share that as well. And I had this player back in the day I was so angry with because of the way she treated everyone, the way she treated her teammates, the way she treated the managers on the team. I mean, there were so many elements in her character I just absolutely had no respect for. So I decided to show her the peer evaluation because usually I just kept it, looked at it, and it was sort of you know in my drawer, but it was never shared with anyone. Obviously, the staff would look at it, you know. <clears throat> But all of a sudden, I got so upset, I showed her uh, what her teammates thought of her. And all of a sudden, I'm looking across my desk after I showed it to her, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I have made a huge mistake. Because she's sitting across from me in, in cold silence. And now I'm nervous. I'm thinking, shouldn't have done this. This was a big mistake. And so I said, well, uh, Mary, are you, are you glad I shared this with you? And she's still looking at this and she's stunned. And in a very low voice, she says, yes. And I said, why? And she said, because I have to change. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> the metamorphosis she went through after getting that peer evaluation was absolutely extraordinary. We have a final test as the kids are leaving my program. This test is in the uh, the banquet in the spring of their uh, senior year when all the seniors have an opportunity to speak. And I can tell from uh, their speech whether or not I've been successful with them. And I can tell when I failed. She gave the greatest senior speech I've ever heard. And what was her speech about? Her speech was about seeing what everyone in the room had evaluated her as and deciding that's not the person she wanted to be. And then she proceeded to make a 180. And it was just extraordinary listening to her basically thank the people in the room for letting her know that uh, there was a better person potentially sitting inside of her. And uh, <clears throat> she wanted that better person to come out. And it was just absolutely extraordinary. And so uh, the senior speech is basically uh, my report card. Um, and of course, the player could say, well, it's her report card. It's not. If I failed, then uh, I'll be able to tell from what she said if I failed. If I haven't convinced her that principal-centered living 
is the way to go, I fail. If I haven't uh, convinced her uh, that uh, basically the way she treats everyone is the final measure in what I value, then I failed. If she's, you know, throwing everyone in the program under the bus for her miserable experience, you know, then I failed. Uh, so uh, this, you know, final measure is is important to me. And uh, fortunately, over time, um, you can tell the kids that have really gotten something out of the program, and you can tell the ones that you didn't reach. Because I don't want to sit here and pretend for a second I've reached everyone I haven't. Um, but obviously, uh, uh, I've certainly reached enough to feel like uh, uh, we've done a really uh, a good job helping these uh, young women uh, get to a, a, a wonderful level as players, as human beings, as academics, because obviously uh, we are uh, an ac academic institution uh, primarily. Okay, so we're going to take a break in our conversation with Anson. I took a lot of notes on today's episode. Some of my biggest takeaways from Anson are that human development is his source of fulfillment and joy and that he welcomes the challenge and the challenges of athletes going into one of the most important transitions in their life. Um, he's definitely impacted the women's game of soccer on a global scale. And I think that he has gained so much momentum as a coach and he's been able to sustain his, not just success, but his joy for coaching because he started with designing the program from the beginning that he wanted to play in. He didn't focus on necessarily what the players wanted. It's about the, the program that he wanted to play in. And I think that's unique. I, I never had thought about that. It really challenged my way of thinking when it comes to the programs that we create for our athletes. And obviously, his situation is a little bit different because he's coaching at the collegiate level and he can recruit players to that. But I think it's important that the program that we do design even if we're at the high school or youth level, obviously we want it to be designed for the inclusivity of, of those players. But we have to have some elements of our program and our team that would be appealing to us as a player because then they'll remain appealing to us as a coach. I thought it was pretty interesting and it was very affirming that Anson Dorrance doesn't have rules, but he does have standards. There are, as he defines standards, behavioral expectations. and that's very consistent with what I teach in the culture system framework. He works really, really hard to create an environment that builds toughness, that doesn't cater to the fragility of today's youth. And this was very, very affirming because I get a lot of pushback from coaches on the competitive cauldron. They feeling like, well, that wouldn't work for my players. And yet what we're doing is we are just saving them from the reality of the world, which is that things are measured. It's competitive out there to get jobs, to keep jobs, right? And I love how he says, hey, this is my role. This is my mission as a coach to help prepare them for that. Uh, and he's always ready to challenge his players with the truth. And he uses the cauldron uh, as well as some of these peer assessments, you know, not to shame them, but to call them up to what he calls the promised land, right? I want to take you to the promised land. I want to, I want to help you to become the best that you can be. And that's what's so powerful about him. He's not using this to shame them, to make them feel bad, but to call them up, not call them out. And I think it's difficult, obviously, for the average coach to provide daily data to players on their you know, wins and losses or their performance in practice. But the cauldron can do that. 
and, and if you do take my competitive cauldron online course, you'll you'll find that. Um, that data then can be used to help us make informed playing time decisions, and um, as well as uh, the player peer assessments of each other on their character. In next episode, we're going to really dive into those two aspects of how we can use data and the peer assessments when it comes to playing time. We're also going to talk about how we can value every player regardless of how much they play, um, how we can help players get to the truth, um, how we can have those hard conversations and those one-on-ones. Anson Dorrance uses player development plans, which is something that the culture system framework uh, uses as well. Uh, So that was really exciting and affirming to hear. And lastly, he talks a lot about working with parents in our next episode, which is uh, something I've been working on there is is building uh, a new course and a a new book for how coaches can better do that. And here's the most winningest college coach of all time in NCAA Division I. And he has attitude of working with parents. So I'm excited for you to hear that in next episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out his books, The Vision of a Champion, Training Soccer Champions, The Man Watching, and his podcast, The Vision of a Champion. You can also get trained in the Competitive Cauldron and get a very easy-to-use spreadsheet to track player performance and practice. Go to tocculture.com forward slash store. We'll also have Jacob put a link uh, to that in the details of this episode. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or on YouTube. Also be sure to share uh, this episode if you found it valuable and leave us a review if you feel it deserves a nice five-star rating.